topic for our Dhamma talk tonight is uh, Chitta Nupasana Satipatthana, namely mindful contemplation of the mind. And uh, in order to appreciate the Buddha's uh, invention of this uh, contemplation of the mind, it's uh, useful you know, to approach it by um, looking at a number of situations uh, that uh, might arise when one does not undertake you know, this contemplation of uh, the mind. So, not understanding the true nature of uh, the mind in its many different uh, aspects, some difficult mental states like uh, intense craving may arise. Craving for another person's uh, possession. And... um, as one is not aware of uh, the driving force, one uh, then uh, may go ahead and uh, then try to uh, get what one craves for so much. And uh, this, if it's not one's own property, sooner or later will lead to some trouble. Likewise, uh, when uh, one is not uh, fully aware of the nature of um, uh, hatred or ill will or anger, these are all um, aspects of the same thing, and then one might get uh, um, very angry with uh, the remark made by maybe one's boss or maybe by a teacher or maybe by a spouse or partner or one might get even upset about something that one's children are doing. So there are many reasons Events uh, that may trigger you know, one's anger and so, or they may activate one's anger, and so, you know, this then you know, may lead to all sorts of consequences. So one might find uh, you know, oneself uh, yelling and screaming or you know, hitting, <laughs> uh, hitting a door or whatnot. You know, there are many you know, expressions you know, to this, and later on one might uh, regret. Or um, a similar case is um, how to deal with the anger, ill will, hatred of another person. Again, it could be one's boss, it could be one's partner or spouse, it could be one's uh, son or daughter, or it could be some stranger, it could be some salesperson in in a big supermarket. It really doesn't matter. And so, if one becomes the victim of such uh, anger or hatred, then how to respond certainly to it? Does one respond certainly with uh, well, in the same amount of uh, anger? <laughs> Does one uh, retaliate in kind? If so, a problem uh, tends to arise and one might uh, get uh, uh, oneself entangled. 
And again, <clears throat> not so truly understanding you know, the nature you know, of you know, the mind, one might experience a particular you know, condition uh, in one's life and then lots of fear arises and one doesn't know how to deal with it. And so as a result of this, the fear might get stronger and stronger and stronger, and so, uh, in the end one gets totally entangled uh, in the fear. Or the same thing may happen with anxiety. And uh, the same thing may also happen with regard to you know, depression. Some you know, condition arises in one's life you know, that is uh, unfavorable, not as planned, not as expected. And uh, at first there is just a mild um, dis disappointment with uh, you know, the situation. But then, uh, as you know, things continue and get worse, it might gradually you know, develop into a full-blown you know, depression if there's not much that one can do you know, to change it. And so, in this way, a person might get entangled in you know, the mental state of uh, depression. And the same thing you know, may happen with many of uh, you know, the other uh, unwholesome mental states or destructive uh, uh, emotions, as uh, Daniel Goldman you know, calls, calls them. And so then again, not understanding the true nature of the mind, one might uh, you know, then you know, have a certain uh, experience and uh, interpret it as a mystical experience. Some supreme being, or by the grace of some supreme being, one is uh, having this wonderful, outstanding, phenomenal um, experience. Or it uh, may uh, happen that uh, and one gets uh, then totally entangled uh, in this and uh, interprets uh, it in a, in a very particular uh, manner. And then what uh, may also happen is, again, not understanding the true nature of the mind, one uh, takes certain formations uh, in the end uh, to be non-existent, leading to uh, nihilism. Or uh, one might certainly uh, take um, uh, one might see the world as, uh, in, in, in this, or according to the idea of all is unity. So, um, whatever supreme being there is, it uh, is united with all uh, all phenomena. Or one might see the world as a plurality. And in all of these certain cases, one gets entangled in a certain way, not certain, even realizing what is happening. Now, owing to this entanglement, the Buddha has certainly spoken in verse as follows, as is recorded in the Samyutta Nikaya 1, Samyutta 1 in Satnya, then the Sutta 23. 
these are also the opening verses of uh, the Visuddhi Magan. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation, and uh, generation here stands for living beings, is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? A man or a woman established on virtue, wise, developing the mind and wisdom. A bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, male or female meditator, with ardent energy and some prudent can, dis- can disentangle this tangle. And so so what interests us most is this second verse, but just for the sake of completion and to satisfy maybe your interest, to give you the third verse too, those for whom lust and hatred along with ignorance have been expunged, the arahans with taints destroyed, for them the tangle is disentangled. So, final disentangling of the tangle comes with the attainment of uh, the path of arahanship. Now, in order to get there, we need to gain a really clear understanding of what the mind is all about. And we also need to gain an understanding into the different and the many detailed aspects of the mind. Now, As non-meditators, we may we might relate to our own mind as just one more or less permanent, quite solid, quite stable entity, and certainly in. Western thoughts, philosophical thought. René Descartes has, for instance, formulated cogito ergo sum. I am thinking, therefore I am. So, this statement then says, as long as there is thinking, or the thinking makes up the personality. And we can uh, then uh, elaborate on this uh, by uh, postulating, well, I'm feeling, therefore I am. Or, I ha- I'm having perceptions, therefore I am. And so, these are, as we will you know, soon see, all wrongful, uh, under- based on a wrongful understanding of uh, the mind. Now, what does all of this mean to uh, us as meditators? 
In the beginning of the meditation practice, we are at times overwhelmed by worries, by regrets, by fear, by anger, jealousy, depression, anxiety, obsessive thoughts, high expectations, mental stress, competition with other meditators, pride, wrong view, and so on. We tend to identify with these uh, mental states, taking them to be my worries, my fear, my anger, my depression, and so on. And as a result of this, we end up uh, with a lot of mental suffering. And so we feel miserable. On top of this, we tend to perceive these mental states to be permanent and substantial. They seem so real. They seem to take on uh, another uh, or a full reality. At times we may be going through an emotional storm, especially when the five hindrances arise in our meditation practice. In a nutshell, we're deeply entangled in the tangle of mental states. To disentangle ourselves from this tangle, we can do the following. By observing an ethical code of conduct, like the five precepts, or eight precepts, or ten precepts, or the monastic vows, we ensure that we will be free from a bad conscience, and free from regret and worries. In this way, we ensure that our future circumstances will be wholesome and pleasant. And it is thus that we begin to disentangle this tangle, so difficult to disentangle. By developing concentration, we manage to suppress the five hindrances and thus the emotional storm calms down to some extent and we suffer less. Again, we disentangle this tangle of mental states uh, with the help of uh, concentration. And then, as intuitive insight or wisdom arises in the form of the first uh, insight knowledge, we realize that mental states are fundamentally different from physical uh, objects. We also realize that some mental states are wholesome, in Pali referred to as kusala, and uh, others are unwholesome, uh, referred to in Pali as akusala. We further realize that it is not my anxiety, not my worries, not my uh, depression, my, not my anger and so on, but just mental states of anxiety, of fear, of worry and so on. In this way, we disentangle you know, the tangle of mental states some more. We learn to disidentify or to disassociate from the mental states. Next, we begin to notice that or how some internal or external phenomena cause an unwholesome mental state you know, to arise. And we begin to see you know, some cause and effect links. Again, we disentangle the tangle of mental states some more. And you know, with this, for instance, you know, we at least 
gets an inkling of uh, the fact uh, that uh, our mental uh, events uh, are not happening in a causeless manner or in a haphazard sort of manner, uh, but rather uh, that they are pretty much governed uh, by cause and effect. Now, with further development in our meditation practice, we see how a mental state arises and then changes. Sometimes it intensifies, sometimes it de-intensifies, and, or disintensifies, and finally it disappears. With this, we realize that a mental state, after all, is not that permanent, but rather transitory in nature. And certainly with this, we gain a direct certain understanding of uh, anicca impermanence with regards uh, to mental states. With continued meditation practice, we realize that mental states are unsatisfactory in nature, conducive to suffering, and not conducive to happiness. And certainly thus dukkha becomes uh, evident. Next, we realize that mental states arise of their own accord. Their arising is beyond our control and that they lack a core. And a mental state is no longer seen as the self or belonging to a self or to a soul or an ego or an individual. There is no more identification with it. And certainly this then gives the meditator some some first understanding of uh, the universal characteristic of uh, non-self, anatta, in the Pali scriptural language. Now, with further development of uh, one's certain meditation, a meditator sees a mental state quickly arising and quickly passing away. And then another mental state rapidly appears to uh, then disappear. This uh, happens over and over again. Now, with all of this, a meditator gradually gains an understanding that the mind is not just this permanent uh, entity that seems so stable and that we tend to own or that we think we are owning, that we are in control of. And so, so the tremendous contribution that uh, the Buddha has made is with this contemplation of uh, the mind and Chitta Nupasana is that uh, he's looking at the mind not as uh, some general entity or compact entity, but rather he does what we do with the body, namely he dissects it into all its many 
parts and lets the meditator carefully observe what is actually there. So it's kind of like uh, taking stock of uh, what occurs in the mind and knowing what is what and seeing the link between one mental state and another mental state and seeing that the mind is not one general entity but rather it consists of many different mental states which each or with each possessing a different quality so Chitanupasana um, in the end is nothing else you know, than kind of uh, doing an inventory when it comes to you know, the mind. An inventory of, uh, of the mind and simply just observing and stating what is there and certain how things are relating you know, to one another. Now, the actual instruction that the Buddha has given us uh, with regard to the contemplation of the mind is as follows. And I'm quoting from you know, the Middle Length Discourses, the 10th Sutta. And how bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, male and female meditators, does a meditator abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a meditator understands mind affected by lust as affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as unaffected by lust. A, med- a meditator furthermore understands mind unaffected by, no sorry, affected by hate as uh, mind affected by hate and mind unaffected by hate as unaffected by hate. A meditator furthermore understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as unaffected by delusion. Furthermore, a meditator understands contracted mind as such and distracted mind as such, namely as a distracted mind. And a meditator understands an exalted or great mind as exalted and an unexalted mind as unexalted mind. A meditator understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. Here she understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and an unconcentrated mind as an unconcentrated mind. A meditator furthermore understands a liberated mind as such and an unliberated mind as unliberated. Now, this passage from the Satipatthana Sutta makes mention of 16 states of mind. And these 16 states of mind pretty much cover what comes up in the mind. And when we look at these 16 states of mind, then we will find that they are classified in particular ways. 
So at first, or the, one of the governing principles is contrasting an unwholesome mind, namely a mind affected by lust, with a mind unaffected by lust. And the same thing goes for hatred, for delusion. And, uh, and then an exalted mind versus an unexalted mind, and so on and so forth. Now, the second governing principle here, the classificatory principle, is that of distinguishing between ordinary states of mind pertaining to the sense sphere consciousness and states of mind that pertain to the lofty mind. So, some higher states of mind. So what we have is a set of eight states that pertain to the ordinary sense sphere consciousness and another set of eight that pertain to the lofty mind. And this then shall be explained further. One more an observation. When it comes to the ordinary states of mind, the first uh, eight, we find that the first uh, three pairs consist of uh, a mind uh, that is affected by lust versus a mind that is unaffected by lust. So one is unwholesome, the other one is wholesome. And then the same thing for anger, a mind affected by anger and versus a mind unaffected by anger. So another contrast of uh, unwholesome versus wholesome. And then the same thing, a mind certainly affected uh, by the confusion of delusion versus a mind that is free or unaffected by delusion. So again, unwholesome versus wholesome. And then two mental states are mentioned that don't quite fit into the general picture. And those are the contracted mind versus the distracted mind. So, with these two, do we have here another pair of uh, one unwholesome, the other wholesome? What do you think? Mary, you shake your hand. Any other comments? (laughs) So... And so when you shake your head, then I take this to mean that these are, what, not a true pair of contrasts. Mm-hmm. Ah. So then would it be right to assume that this is a pair of wholesome mental states? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that neither. So then what we're left with Uh, is a pair of unwholesome mental states. And indeed, both of these, they don't fit into the general pattern, and both of them are unwholesome, and the contracted state of mind in the Pali language known as Sankita Chaita is actually being by the, identified by the commentators as representing sloth and torpor, or a mind governed by sloth and torpor, and 
mind, a distracted mind, wikita chaitan pali, is a mind that is governed by restlessness and uh, remorse, udicha and kukucha. Now, when it comes <coughs> to the actual practice of Chitanupasana, there is one, um, one aspect that we very much need to keep in mind. Now, non-meditators or uninformed meditators will or, or might in the face of some unwholesome mental state do the following. So let's say heavy anger has arisen in the mind and the person says this is too much I'll get drunk. <laughs> And sooner or later, I'll forget about the issue that then triggers the hatred. So, uh, or um, a person might say, well, uh, I'm so depressed because of uh, a particular situation in my life, um, you know, the only way to you know, get over this depression is you know, by going to the movies. And, uh, <laughs> or, or I've heard, and please don't laugh, <laughs> I've heard of a case, um, actually I know of a person who, when feeling somewhat uneasy, unhappy with life, would then simply get into her car and start up the engine and drive the car wherever the car would take her. So, from places, from all the way from Rome to London, or from Rome maybe to Munich. So, apparently, there are people who do this. Maybe not quite to this extreme, but just roaming around in one's car might be a way of getting over one's depression. Have you ever done this? No? Ah, yes. Oh, yes, see? At least we have one person. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, we tend to, we tend to uh, try to escape or to run away on unwholesome mental states you know, in different uh, ways. And so simply, you know, we are not facing them. And another common approach to the arising of unwholesome or an unwholesome mental state would be to act on it. So, you know, when you know, strong anger has arisen, uh, then you know, to you know, pick a quarrel. 
and with just so, you know, the next person who you know, uh, you know, walks by. Now, this doesn't seem very wise, but so, you know, some people do this. Or other you know, people you know, might say, well, uh, acting out the anger is not you know, the quite you know, the you know, quite you know, it's not quite right. But uh, what if I just suppress it, and uh, I'll just keep swallowing the issue day after day, and this then you know, will you know, ensure you know, peace and harmony at home. What do you think? Will this work in the long run? Uh, this will not work either. So, with regard to difficult mental states, now, the various options exist. We can either repress, or try to repress those mental states, or we you know, might decide to act on them, uh, which might have you know, serious consequences, or you know, we might simply you know, just you know, run away from them you know, by distracting ourselves. Now, the Buddha's approach you know, to you know, this situation is quite different. And his approach is simply wise observation, detached, a calm and detached observation of whatever mental state comes up. So, whatever unholds a mental state or even you know, holds a mental state comes up. And so this then marks a big or, or signals a big difference you know, from you know, the instruction given by the Buddha himself with regard to bodily and verbal you know, misconduct. So, uh, now, the Buddha's instruction for you know, bodily or you know, verbal uh, poor behavior is you know, change it. Let go, let go of unwholesome you know, conduct and replace it by some wholesome conduct. And whereas when it comes to mental states, the Buddha does not say the same thing. He does not say, you know, immediately replace an unwholesome mental state by a wholesome mental state. But he rather says, just observe. That's all. And so what we need to you know, do is, we need to observe in a non-reactive uh, manner whatever is uh, happening. Now, to this point, you may then say, well, fair enough, but what if my anger or my craving or pride and conceit or depression, whatever, is so strong that just ordinary non-reactive awareness doesn't do anything. It might even make the situation worse. So, in this case, the Buddha does speak of a last resort, and we find an instruction in this connection in the so-called Vitaka Santana Sutta, the discourse on the removal of distracting thoughts, and 
there it says that uh, if everything else has failed one should simply resort to you know, beat by uh, resort to crushing the mind with the mind and what this means is to replace an unwholesome mental state through a wholesome one. Now the instructions that are given with regards to the removal of distracting thoughts are in essence the following. And they're given in a progressive manner. And so, if, uh, for instance, some um, troublesome thought has arisen, then one should give attention to some other sign connected with what is uh, wholesome. And uh, so, if you know, thoughts of hatred keep uh, arising, uh, then uh, one should uh, replace those hateful thoughts by thoughts of loving kindness. And secondly, one should, if this is not helping, then one should examine the danger in unwholesome thoughts, such as hateful thoughts or thoughts of greed and so on. And if this is not working, then one should try to simply forget those negative thoughts. Just ignore them and focus one's attention on some other object. Now, if this also doesn't work, then the Vitaka Santana Sutta recommends that one look for a possible cause for you know, these certain thoughts. So, is there any underlying uh, issue you know, that might be triggering or fueling you know, these certain thoughts? And if all of you know, these first you know, four you know, methods don't work, then you know, the Buddha recommends to crush mind with mind. And by crushing the mind with mind is meant you know, that you know, one replaces you know, the unwholesome states you know, by some wholesome you know, states. And so. If the one is then overcome by strong anger, one simply makes it a point to just think positive thoughts. And in this connection, the Vitaka Santana Sutta also gives an illustration which is basically an illustration regarding a deactivation of a particular process. And I'll change the illustration. Let's say you're sitting in the dining hall and you find yourself eating incredibly rapidly. So, spoon after spoon. And then, you know, but fortunately, you don't forget to be mindful of it, and <laughs> and then you realize, my goodness, I'm eating then quickly. Is there any reason for this? What if I were to slow down a little bit? And then you slow down. You eat certain a little bit certain uh, less quickly, and then after a while, you realize. Hmm, 
uh, it's still pretty pretty quick. What if I you know, slow down you know, my eating even more? This might uh, you know, even enable me you know, to you know, observe more carefully. And as a result of this, you know, then you slow down your eating even more. And so until you know, finally you, know, you come to a point where you do you know, you know, the everything involved in the you know, eating so slowly you know, that it becomes a real meditative uh, eating session and much wisdom uh, arises and so likewise for a mental state if a particular mental state like let's take restlessness is very strong we first realize how this restlessness is really too much what if I try to calm down a little bit and then one does this and then after a while one realizes there's still too much restlessness within me what if I change this some more and what if I try to become even more tranquil and then so on and so forth until finally the restlessness at least temporarily subsides and so um, this process of gradual deactivation is actually quite uh, helpful uh, with regard to all of uh, the unwholesome uh, mental states now In general terms, when we you know, think of you know, the instructions given you know, in the passage under you know, Chitanupasana, Satipatthana, then we you know, find that so, this Chitanupasana, or when practiced, will lead you know, to a detached in a detached, non-reactive or balanced, and a non-identification, non, yeah, well, it leads to detachment and non-identification with regards to the observation of mental states. And so, so the general direction of Chitta Nupasana, Satipatthana is the same as is the case for the mindful contemplation of feelings and of the body. So whatever comes up, we do not. So we try at least not to identify with it and not to get certain to reactive and carried away. Now, when we undertake this contemplation of the mind, we will also make another important discovery. Namely, at first, we might think that we are in control of the mind and that the mental states arising in the mind are are pretty much dependent on what we want to happen in the mind. But then, (coughs) upon closer observation, 
we may notice that um, in our meditation practice, you know, we're sitting there trying very hard to develop concentration, and you know, somebody or something you know, causes a big you know, noise, and you know, then you know, this gets us, you know, gets us all upset. Now, an external event um, has an influence on the mind. And this then proves, at least to some extent, that the mind is not, or what is happening in the mind, is not totally independent of external events, but rather very much dependent on external as well as internal events. To give you an example, for an internal event, some strong pain arises, it gets stronger and stronger, and then sooner or later, what will arise in the mind? If we're absent-minded, aversion will arise. Yes, indeed. And so... Uh, or we experience certain, some you know, wonderful you know, chills and thrills going through the body, soothing chills, and that again, you know, when we're absent-minded, what certainly will happen, we may uh, get attached or crave uh, you know, for uh, more of uh, the same. Now, when we undertake this contemplation of uh, the mind, then we will understand the nature of uh, those sort of three universal uh, or three three, roots of all unwholesomeness, namely greed, hatred, and delusion. And so, so you know, when we are overcome by you know, the fever of lust, then we will understand that there is no fire like passion. And so when we get angry about something, and so we realize how much the body as well as the mind tenses up, then we will understand that there is no grip like ill will, and when confusion is, or sorry, when delusion or ignorance is the predominant mental state, and we lose our bearings, and so we're all confused, then we will understand the Buddha when he says, there is no net like ignorance being entangled, caught up uh, in uh, this net. And so, thus, the Buddha has expressed all of this in Dhammapada verse 251, where he says first in Pani, then in English, Nati araga samo agi, nati dosa samo gaho, nati mohasamam jalam, nati tanha sama nadi. There is no fire like passion, there is no, fire, no grip like ill will, there's no net like ignorance. There's no river like craving. So the contemplation of the mind yields many uh, benefits. And 
one of you know, those you know, further you know, benefits is this very simple make it, learning to make this very simple distinction between uh, between what wholesome and unwholesome yes correct and so when you talk to some ordinary person, a non-meditator, and you ask him, do you know what is meant by wholesome or wholesome mental state? The person may say, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, wholesome, wholesome, and, wholesome and unwholesome are words that are not, not very not, not well, or are not that common in uh, our in society's general uh, vocabulary and so, uh, overall in society we can say at least under certain circumstances uh, it is socially quite okay to get angry when the cashier is not handing, handing back the right amount of cash or if an employee is not doing what he or she is supposed to do then we'll take our fist and bang it on <laughs> on the table. So these uh, expressions of uh, anger are seen as quite normal, quite wholesome. There's nothing wrong with this. But when we meditate, then our, our well perception of, of the mind and the world starts to change. Now, before going any further and uh, going into our you know, passage uh, containing the instructions, uh, let's clarify you know, the term citta. And so what we're doing now is, uh, or discussing, is citta nupassana. Anupassana is contemplation. Citta is a Pali word you know, which you know, translates as mind or one's mood or simply state of mind. And it's a term uh, that oftentimes and covers um, the mind as a whole, comprising you know, its two major elements, namely consciousness and you know, then a variety of mental states or mental factors. So basically we have two things, two ingredients to the mind, consciousness, and there's a total of 89 or in a wider sense 121 you know, types of consciousness, and then now, there's a total of 52 different kinds of mental factors. So for your better understanding, um, one moment of consciousness arises and it will be accompanied by you know, a certain number, varying number of uh, mental factors. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes more on the wholesome side, sometimes more on the unwholesome side. So anyways, now the term citta covers both of those ingredients and so refers to the mind as in general. Now, when we look at our basic instruction, um, then we find mention there 
of the mind unaffected by lust, just as an example, versus a mind affected by lust. Or a mind unaffected by anger and a mind affected by anger. Now, the expression a mind affected by anger simply means anger is present. So that's straightforward. However, the term a mind unaffected by uh, anger, so a mind without anger, gives room to uh, a number of different interpretations. And so a mind without anger may refer to what? Sounds to me like it's just a difference between identifying with that emotional state. I, I, I guess I translate affected by as identified with. Um, there is that's not the main the main point. Um, although, well, in a wider sense, in a wider sense, yes, okay. But apart from this, what else? Peaceful mind? Ah. Now, what if you say you know, a mind filled with loving kindness? <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> ah, that would be good too. So, a mind that is without anger could be interpreted as sort of meaning a mind sort of overflowing with sort of loving kindness. So, a mind in which loving kindness is present. So, hatred is gone, or anger is gone, and so instead loving kindness is there. Or, you know, the expression without anger may be taken to mean temporarily free from anger. So it doesn't, uh, as uh, you're experiencing in your meditation practice, there are moments when the mind is quite free from anger. So that's one thing. And you know, then we can uh, interpret you know, this term without anger you know, yet in another way. Not just temporarily free from anger, but. permanently, totally free from anger. And a mind that is totally free from anger, in an absolute sense, is then a mind of uh, what? Of whom? Of an arahant. There you go. So, that then refers to the most extreme case of the person who has totally uprooted anger once and forever. And the expression without anger may be interpreted or made assume yet another meaning, namely that a meditator knows the relative absence of anger or then by extension of greed and delusion. So, let's say you practice and then sooner or later you gain the path of stream entry and with this the anger will be not totally uprooted but at 
least weakened. And then you realize, ah, now there's not that much anger present in the mind anymore as certain before the experience. So, the term without anger, without greed, or without lust, and without delusion uh, may uh, assume, in accordance with the uh, text, uh, different uh, meanings. And what I'm saying here is based, uh, I'm taking this, or is based on the explanations given by Venerable Analayo uh, in his book, uh, Satipatthana, and his chapter on Chitta which is really helpful. And when it comes to the ordinary states of mind, and in particular the last two, namely the contracted mind and then the distracted mind, um, apparently these are two states of mind that are important enough for the Buddha to include in his certain instructions. And they're important in a sense that a meditator who wants to do successful practice avoid these as much as possible. So, not to let the mind go into this, um, well, shrunken, shriveled, certain contracted, certain state caused by um, sloth and torpor, nor to allow the mind to get into this distracted state caused by restlessness and remorse. So a meditator then needs to find just the right balance, avoiding both of these extremes. Now, when the expression is used the mind with lust, then this refers to the karmically unwholesome eight conscious states of the plane of sense fear existence. So, unwholesome, eight kinds of unwholesome consciousness. Whereas, when the expression goes as a mind free of or free of lust or without lust, then this refers to karmically wholesome and certain karmically neutral mundane states of consciousness. And then the same thing goes certain for the other pairs. Now, maybe this much regarding... Oh no, there's still one more point. Namely, with regard to the ordinary states of mind, only eight are mentioned. However, there's so many different kinds of uh, mental states uh, around. So you might object and say, well, what about those others? And so uh, the the answer to this is uh, they are all subsumed under, um, under the term ignorance. So, ignorance is being mentioned, the mind or affected by ignorance, and whenever ignorance is present, then, or, sorry, I have to express it differently, whenever an unwholesome mental state arises, whatever that unwholesome mental state may be, pride or wrong view or craving or this or that, then ignorance will definitely be present. 
Now, we need to observe those sort of ordinary states of mind over and over again you know, to you know, then gain a proper you know, relationship uh, you know, to them and so to understand them in uh, you know, the light of true light of uh, anicca dukkha and uh, anatta now fortunately human or mental or mental experience of human beings is not limited to only those ordinary states of mind and the Buddha had a deep understanding into the mind and he himself had practiced a lot and had access to a number of rather outstanding or lofty states of mind and by subjecting these certain lofty mental states to his really careful and mindful analysis of what is there he then managed to clearly pinpoint okay this is so and so this is a jhana experience maybe first jhana this second jhana this third jhana fourth jhana and certainly so on and certainly the uh, ingredients of uh, you know, the first jhana are so and so ingredients of another you know, second jhana are you know, again slightly different and so on so this then uh, leads you know, to a demystification of you know, certain spiritual experiences as human beings we have a tendency you know, to you know, interpret if not oftentimes misinterpret uh, our uh, mental uh, experiences or spiritual experiences now when it comes you know, to you know, the first pair of lofty or higher states of mind then um, you know, this is about a great mind or an exalted mind to know an exalted mind you know, when it's exalted and to know an unexalted mind when it's unexalted now the term great or exalted in the Pali scriptural language is given as Mahagata needs to, you know, needs to be understood and uh, it is a term that is frequently you know, being used in connection with uh, the four divine abodes, the, you know, the four Brahma-viharas. The four Brahma-viharas you know, form a set of uh, four qualities, mental qualities, uh, or meditation on four mental qualities as part of Samatha meditation, so Samatha Bhavana. And those are you know, loving kindness meditation, metta bhavana, and then contemplation of uh, compassion, karuna bhavana, and then contemplation of sympathetic joy, mudita bhavana, and uh, you know, then as the last one, upeka bhavana, which is uh, my, uh, contemplation of uh, equanimity. And 
So, in the context of uh, those, the expression exalted or great mind uh, comes up. So, when we practice the Brahma Viharas, then we should be aware of those mental states. And understand them each or understand them clearly and distinctly. Now, as for the next pair, namely surpassable and then unsurpassable. Now, the Pali term for surpassable is sa uttara, and it is a term that is again used in connection with the jhanas. And so, uh, what it means is that one abandons a particular jhanic factor in uh, or in order to proceed to the next higher you know, level of uh, absorption. So you know, this you will not understand uh, um, and thus some further explanations are necessary. Let's say you've developed the first jhana and so maybe using metta as your practice. And so the first jhana consists of five jhanic factors. The five jhanic factors are initial application of the mind, vitaka, then the second one, sustained application of the mind, vichara, and then the third jhanic factor is joy, piti, the fourth one is sukha, which is happiness, and the last one is ekagata, or one-pointedness. So we have five jhanic factors. Now, when developing and experiencing this first jhana over and over and over again and getting better at it, gradually the mind gets somewhat, um, not upset, but somewhat uh, uh, dissatisfied with the presence of you know, the you know, first jhanic factor, namely in the initial application of the mind. What this means is the mind is with you know, the object for, you know, for a time, then it loses its object. Then it's with, you know, with the object again, it loses it again. So it's a rather unsteady you know, mind. And you know, since this first jhanic factor is somewhat unsatisfactory, it then falls away. And this then makes certain a progression to uh, you know, the second certain jhana possible. And the second jhana here is uh, in context of uh, you know, the fivefold classification system. And the second jhana then you know, no longer has vitaka, and so it is, however, you know, composed of you know, sustained application of the mind, and then you know, bhitis, you know, so joy, happiness, sukha, and one pointedness, ekagata. So the the vitaka initial application of the mind is that factor that we can surpass. Now, different from this is the term unsurpassable, anuttara in the Pali scriptural language. And this term refers to the fourth yeah, well, the fourth jhana, and this time using the fourfold classification system, which 
are then is governed by only two jhanic factors, namely equanimity and mindfulness. And so, and it ends there. Even if one practices further, it's not going to get deeper than that. The two states of equanimity and mindfulness simply stay. Even if one develops the so-called immaterial jhanic states. And so thus, equanimity and mindfulness cannot be surpassed. They are unsurpassable. Hence, what the Buddha is referring to in a mindset, or when one practices the jhanas and one gains the fourth jhana, um, then one should be aware, one should know this unsurpassable mind as unsurpassable mind. Now, this is within the context of the jhanas. However, the term unsurpassable also figures in the text under Vipassana well, meditation, and so there it refers to full awakening, so the attainment of arahanship. And yet, the term unsurpassable may also include the or includes the reviewing knowledge after the realization of the Dhamma of some level of enlightenment and when a meditator investigates which unwholesome mental states have fallen away and which ones remain and to which extent. And then when it comes to you know, the pair of concentrated, the concentrated mind versus the unconcentrated mind, well, you know, this term you know, refers to you know, both uh, samatha meditation, so you know, the serenity meditation or calm meditation, um, as well as insight uh, meditation. And so it refers to, um, well, oh, access concentration and full uh, absorption in the case of the jhanic practice, but uh, it's, uh, and so on top of this, it uh, refers to momentary concentration, kanika samadhi, in the context of insight meditation. Now, the last pair consists of the liberated mind versus the unliberated mind. And here, liberated, vimutta in Pali, refers either to a temporary or permanent certain experience of mental freedom from defilements in insight meditation and calm meditation. So this then you know, gives you an idea of uh, those uh, four uh, pairs among the lofty states. And when it comes, uh, maybe just uh, one uh, general, uh, another general footnote, is when it comes to the contemplation of mindful contemplation of the mind 
and contemplation of wholesome mental states, unwholesome mental states like greed, uh, uh, you know, anger, delusion, you know, wrong views, pride and conceit, restlessness and remorse and so on. Uh, well, um, in Nibbana you know, there is none of them. And so eventually you know, the you know, practice of you know, Chitta Nupasana will lead us certain you know, to you know, this certain experience of Nibbana um, where all you know, mental states are you know, not uh, perceived. And the contemplation of uh, the mind is uh, necessary uh, in order to develop one's mind you know, from a tender and rather uh, well rather fragile state you know, to uh, a rather mature and resilient state. The Venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to uh, illustrate this in the following way, namely uh, a young uh, plants or sapling is still uh, very much affected by the vicissitudes of uh, the climate. And uh, so when it's cold, the, the sapling it might certainly die, or when it gets too hot, it might also die, or, you know, or wither and then and, and die. And so, so it's important that so, the you know, fragile and tender sapling grow into some strong uh, plant or tree. Likewise, the mind in its untrained state tends to be rather tender, rather fragile, and rather uh, reactive. And so, you know, as a result, we suffer a lot. But as many Meditators, you know, we have you know, the you know, tremendous you know, potential or opportunity to strengthen this mind, to work with it and to, to see what is happening in the mind over and over again and to learn to you know, let go and to observe you know, the phenomena in a detached manner, in a non-reactive manner and uh, you know, then in the end you know, when strong equanimity is there nothing will touch our mind. And uh, even you know, when we feel depressed, we no longer need to drive all the way from Rome to London. <laughs> or uh, we no longer need to distract ourselves by you know, going you know, to uh, the movies or to get uh, drunk or anything you know, like this. So, let me conclude today's uh, Dhamma talk by... Uh, wishing may the uh, contemplation of uh, the mind citta nupasana satipatthana which is the third among the four establishments may it lead all of us to an ever deeper understanding of the many aspects of the mind and as a result of this may we grow in many maturity and uh, you know, then equipped with much mental stamina and uh, resilience may we go through life being totally unaffected and this is it for today
Now, we have a few minutes for some some questions, clarifications, comments. If you have, yes, Rick. Uh, it seems like yesterday we were talking about David and Goliath. Today we're talking about mind state. Yes. Part of making difficulty for translation. These terms. It seems to me that the mental states you were talking about that are so problematic for us are almost invariably bound up, mixed up with feelings. Oh yes, certainly that is correct. With feelings and so also leading to certain manifestations in the body. But well, as you know, as explained already yesterday, you know, because there is you know, this strong causal link or connection you know, between you know, feeling and craving, and it leads to so you know, many difficulties uh, that the you know, Buddha apparently has taken you know, the Vedanas, the feelings, um, you know, as one you know, particular topic or separate topic for uh, observation. So I guess my, to get to my question, What is, is the root cause of most of the suffering? Is it feelings, originating feelings? Oh. Oh, mm, there's a, apparently there's a, you know, a quote or a passage somewhere in the text that say 100% of all suffering or unsatisfactoriness is rooted in the three you know, the roots of all unwholesomeness, namely greed, hatred, and delusion. No, so, no. Which means not seeing the true nature of uh, formations and uh, not seeing the unwholesome mental states as unwholesome. We then again and again fall into various traps and suffer. And so so, um, the feelings contribute to this and unskillful thinking contributes to this and not being... Mindful of the nature of perceptions contributes to this. No, and see, as non-meditators, uh, we are basically you know, the you know, the victims of um, uh, well of, of of the mind of the you know, mechanisms or mechanics of uh, you know, the mind. However. Um, Mindful contemplation brings a better understanding. We see the patterns and as such then manage to distract ourselves from those patterns. Does that kind of... Does it answer? Is it really true to your question? Well, 
but I can get a feeling for me myself about feelings arising, you know, passion or craving or aversion. These different Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, no, just for clarification, no, no, please, you're, don't use the word feeling for mental states. Um, no, see, no, a passion is a mental state, but it's not a feeling. A feeling is, a, is the, as we discussed yesterday, the effective quality of, a, of an experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. No, so no, seeing, uh, seeing the mental states, yes, is good. And certain like passion, anger, hatred, what, whatnot. You have to see you know, those over and over and over again. And you know, the thoughts, you know, gradually, you know, gradually you'll see you know, more of those too. No, it's just a matter of uh, you know, training in mindfulness. And so at the beginning of our you know, training in and mindfulness will see you know, just the you know, the very tip of the of the iceberg of you know, thinking, and so you know, then as our you know, mindfulness improves, we'll you know, pick up even more you know, subtle thoughts. No, that at first uh, are you know, not that obvious. See, it's, you know, to understand the mind is not that easy. It takes, uh, it takes quite, uh, uh, quite a lot of practice. It takes training. It takes, you know, it takes uh, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and uh, you know, wisdom uh, needs to be there. And a number of us, other aspects need to be there. No, but if you keep at it, then gradually, you know, you know things get uh, clearer. No. Okay, then what next? Oh, let me see. Yes, please. Um, this is related, I think, probably to Rick's question. I very often have seen Chita translated as heart mind, and I wonder what your opinion is of that translation. Mm, who translates it <laughs> like this? <laughs> I think I have primarily seen it in Mahayana sources. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Well, in, in Theravada, usually it's not being translated like that as heart mind. But you know, there maybe the reason behind certain you know, this is certain you know, there seems to be a certain you know, connection between the mind and you know, the heart. And uh, actually, modern you know, scientific research now is gradually you know, looking at you know, looking into this. And so, you know, so you know, the mind has an effect on the on the heart, and the heart in turn you know, may have an impact on on, on the mind. And so, since the heart is also governing, uh, apparently governing our, uh, you know, our uh, well-being and so on, uh, maybe because of this, it's included. No, as in the translation of the term citta. But in, in Theravada, usually, that's, or usually the term citta translates as mind.
maybe as an additional, uh, or in addition to what has been said, the commentators now give as the base for the mind you know, the heart cavity. No? And so, so the base for the seeing process lies with the eyes. The base for the hearing process lies uh, with our ears. The base for the smelling process is with the nose. The base for the taste you know, process is uh, you know, lies in the tongue. And so you know, the base for tactile experiences lies in the body itself. But you know, the um, well somewhat uh, you know, difficult situation with the mind is uh, that the Buddha himself you know, apparently hasn't clearly uh, given any uh, you know, base for the mind, you know, material, material base. And uh, you know, thus the commentators you know, felt there needs to be you know, such a thing as a material base for the mind and so, you know, they've then um, taken up the notion which was current uh, at their you know, time in, in history uh, namely you know, this idea of uh, the heart cavity you know, being you know, the base of uh, the mind and so, you know, so you know, when the Mahayanists uh, translate the term citta as uh, uh, heart mind or mind heart, um, then maybe that alludes to that. That's, that's the sense I have, but it gets to another question that I had in your um, description of Gita uh, as including consciousness, and I had thought that consciousness was specific to the sense gates. So the question is, what is the gate for consciousness of mind? Um, oh, there is some um, you know, dhamma. You know, there, there is certain you know, um, mind. Uh, what's the term for that? Mano, manochita, I think. Um, mm, or consciousness that certain uh, takes uh, you know, the mind itself uh, as an object that exists. No, just like you have seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling, tasting, touching consciousness. You know, there's also consciousness. I think it's called Dhamma, you know, Dhamma Chitta. I forgot the term. I'll have to look it up. No, but it exists. No. Okay, then what next? Yes, there in the back. Stephen, you no, know. Afterwards, what difference is there between um, what in Buddhism is called mental states and what we call emotions? Oh, good question. Oh, the term emotion tends to be um, a rather complex thing that covers different, um, maybe different mental states and some other aspects all all together. Whereas in in Buddhism, mental states is a mental state is just a a particular uh, quality of uh, the mind. 
So it's it's why or it's best not to um, use the term emotion when when you speak of mental states. Yeah, I mean, I get it that there's a reason that we're not we're not translating it as emotion, you know. But then the word mental state, I think, causes confusion too because then it's like to sound more like thought, you know, it's like your cerebral, and it's really more. Well, the the expression as mental state or a mental factor um, is somewhat certainly technical, and so and in 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 that sense, well, you say neutral. That's the term I would go with. And uh, indeed, you know, that's what what the Buddha intended. You know, just a very neutral and objective uh, um, observation of what's uh, you know, what is. You know, without uh, uh, getting you know, too you know, too excited about uh, you know, you know, those mental states. No, the term emotion indeed uh, has this you know, this flavor of you know you'll be crying and uh, uh, and then you'll be sad and uh, uh, at another point uh, you'll be totally elated and joyous and and, and so on. So maybe just, this is just off the top of my head that if it's an emotion, there's almost inherent in that some identification with it. Yes, yes, that's good. Or actually, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I'll go along with that. No. <laughs> so we have then the answer to your question. No. So whereas in the case of a mental state, it's uh, uh, just sort of what is uh, without uh, the identification and uh, uh, just observing it in a non-reactive manner, in a fact, in an objective manner. Uh, what was that? Uh, when it's an emotion, we already have sort of taken it and ran with it a little yes, bit. Yes, 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 indeed. Yeah. Right. So that uh, takes care of, of your question. And now, Stephen, your question. Well, two things. The, the first one is maybe too general. Uh, uh, in, in, in observing mind, in observing what's going on in, in mind, one of the things that I do run into is what, what I think of as the, the Archimedes problem or infinite regression problem. You know, Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough and I can move the earth. The problem is the place to stand. And that whereas it seems easier for, um, for me to observe uh, the body, uh, when I'm observing the mind, um, Sometimes the mind starts concerning itself with observing itself. So anyway, so there's yeah, right. that, and it's, it's a, it, I know it's a big question. So I have a more practical question. Uh, the more practical. So wait, wait, wait. So in this connection, then what's the, what's the question? Well, what to do? Is it? Um, sometimes it occurs to me. Oh well, this is simply the ultimate koan. <laughs> Um, it, it's impossible, and it, it will prove it, that if I really look at it, it will prove itself. It that just observing that that it's impossible 
proves that there is no place, that there is no I. That, that, that looking oh. at it carefully, it, it will actually um, become apparent that there can't be an I. Because yeah, right, indeed. If there were an I, there would yeah. be an infinite regression. Uh, right, indeed. So that, no, the whole, as, Stephen, in the beginning of the practice, you know, the contemplation of uh, you know, the mind is not, uh, it doesn't come, uh, come easily. Because uh, you know, the mind is something extremely refined and therefore very difficult to observe. And uh, indeed the mind comes up with all sorts of tricks. Uh, however, in the course of our meditation practice, in particular during you know, the higher insight knowledges, the um, mental states come more into the foreground. The physical objects kind of move into the background. They're not that uh, perceptible anymore. And then uh, it's at that point you know, when a meditator gains a pretty good understanding of the mind. No, and so at that point, indeed, one sees just like you say, you know, that all there is different uh, mental states that are occurring, and so and there's no no need for you know, for self there, for an I there. No, it happens all nice, quite nicely, you know, without uh, <laughs> the, the notion of the you know the self or ego. Okay, and then uh, the more practical question or immediate question. Um, relates to um, you having said yesterday that um, uh, that that feelings are always present. That that if there's an object, then there's also a, a, a feeling. Yes, right. Relationship to that. Yes. So, for instance. Uh, when I'm walking, um, I, I perceive for, for, here are three things. I perceive the the foot is gliding forward. I also then it seems to me that I that I so there's that in the body, and then there's usually actually a mental thing which is that I have an image of the foot, and that's in my mind. And then maybe I have a neutral feeling about the the foot is gliding forward. And then as the foot heads down to the ground, um, I, I, I perceive the, the foot is moving, that the body is doing this, and then maybe I have a, um, a, 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 a mental thing like anticipation mm-hmm. of, of the ground. And I have a very light feeling of of uh, positive uh, positive feeling uh, with the anticipation. So, in in, in all, both of those cases, it seems to me there are three things happening at once, and I don't know whether whether um, it is possible to perceive. Uh, three things at once, whether whether the things become like translucent, so that it could, so I mean sometimes with the breath it feels as though the breath is still there, but in the background as some other object comes to the foreground, or whether there's actually a very fast progression and I'm just 
you know, do, do I need to let go in, in order to, to perceive the feeling? Mm. Is there a moment of letting go of the body or mental image in order to perceive the feeling? Mm. Can one actually perceive the feeling and the body or mental image is still there in the background? Mm. Your question is, is, is excellent. And so, you know, the answer is as certain follows, that namely, um, on, a, on the surface, at times, it certainly may seem as if we are knowing two or three or even four objects at the same time. Not just like you've described very nicely. However, from an ultimate point of view and Abhidhamma point of view, one moment of consciousness will take in only one object at a time. And the way the mind is organized is that one moment of consciousness arises, it will be accompanied by a number of different mental factors, and this moment of consciousness will take in, be conscious of, one object. No? And so, the consciousness and the corresponding mental factors, they all work on this one object. Then that consciousness passes away, and another a new con- moment of consciousness arises, again with uh, you know, some uh, mental, you know, mental states accompanied, and you know, that second moment of consciousness will you know, take maybe the same object, uh, or be conscious of the same object, but maybe also some other object. And then that second consciousness also disappears, and then a third moment of consciousness arises, which, let's say, then takes a third object, or or is conscious of a third object. And since the mind is operating at such a great speed, um, so one moment of consciousness after another, arising, passing, arising, passing, arising, passing, that you know, the illusion is created as if we are seeing or knowing three or four objects simultaneously. But strictly speaking, it is more of a linear affair and it's one you know, object after another. It's just that the mind is shuttling back and forth between different objects. Good. So it, it, it then seems to me that it's that actually sticking with um, something um, becomes in a way impossible because the, the thing that I'm sticking with um, is, is constantly um, interrupted uh, by these other little things like, like if, if I'm aware of mm. the feeling mm. uh, as, as the foot is moving I've become aware of the feeling and for a, even for a split second, it, it interrupts the awareness of the foot. Yeah, right. So, uh, what you're describing is very well observed. And so, 
um, it sounds that like uh, you're experiencing what Sadhupanita calls the panoramic awareness. And uh, so your main attention goes to one object, and simultaneously you're kind of aware of a number of other objects in the background. No? In which case, it's good to you know, label or to you know, give full, you know, most of one's attention you know, to the main object and then just uh, in, a, in a general way you know, be aware of those other objects without labeling you know, those other objects. No, so you give most of your attention to the you know, main object and the other ones you just notice along the periphery. No. And you'll see in time that the quality of your mindfulness you know, will change and so, you know, then it will become more you know, one-pointed. And then it's really, you know, all of 100% of one's attention is on one object at a time. So an object arises, the mind goes there, you know, the object is gone, the mind goes to you know, some you know, new object arising. You know, one after another and not uh, simultaneously. And also, you know, things, uh, you know, things keep changing. You know, the quality of our mindfulness you know, keeps changing in the you know, course of the you know, meditation practice. No. Uh, now, yes. Oh, Amy. I'm following up on Stephen's question. Um, so consciousness has to co-arise as an object? They have to exist together? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, oh, consciousness, no, whole. No, one moment of consciousness will take in or be conscious of one object. And whatever, you know, what, you know whatever pre- most predominant object that might be. I can get it. Uh, let's say, let's say you have two, you know, two, three, you know, three different objects no? that are competing you know, for uh, attention. So one is uh, you know, this alarm clock here, then is a piece of paper, and then here we have this wonderful yellow you know, emergency light. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, so now you're you know, paying your your attention is more or less here in, you know, towards this area and uh, you know, then you know, your consciousness uh, you know, will um, you know, maybe you know, it, well it will settle for the most predominant object among the three it will settle on one and let's say because the color is so outstanding uh, it will <laughs> it will go towards this one no. Or to give actually a better example, you know, you're sitting at home, and uh, you know, you're sitting on the sofa. The TV is switched on, and uh, you know, then you, know, you are enjoying you know, a delicious uh, dinner. And uh, you know, so, involved in this experience is uh, hearing, uh, hearing you know, you know, the you know, reporter's uh, 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 statement on, on TV, and uh, then also you'll be seeing the images on the TV, and then you'll have uh, you know, some maybe comfortable uh, physical sensation in the body while sitting on the sofa, and then you'll be having your meal, so there's a taste impression there. No? And so, you know, these different things um, are, uh, different objects are um, competing for your attention. And the consciousness will you know, focus on one at a time. 
And so the factor that plays a, you know, an important role in this connection is manasikara, namely wise attention or you know, the directing of the mind. Manasikara is said to, you know, to uh, it's kind of the, you know, the rudder of a, sh- of a ship, or just like the rudder of a ship determines then, you know, the direction or the destination of the ship, so too manasikara you know, determines you know, the direction you know, the mind is taking or the object it is uh, taking in. So how, how is um, a choice being made on, say, the three objects you've chosen as example, how is, how is a choice made to direct the mind at which of the three objects? Or whatever you know, is more, you know, uh, more predominant. You mean in terms of the sense doors? Yeah, predominant, oh, predominant certainly. Um, I suppose so. Predominance in terms of, uh, let's say in this case, something, you know, the color. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. And so this yellow here is something quite outstanding, uh, more so than you know, the, uh, the color of the other two objects. So whatever, um, whatever our mind sort of goes to, whatever the sense door that our, our mind favors, is that what you're saying? Mm. Did you get the second time you said choosing the color of the emergency light? No, no, I'm saying, yeah, because, you know, the you know, color, among the three objects, uh, you know, this color is more, uh, more outstanding or more conspicuous, so uh, probably the mind goes uh, towards that. But can, can there be a conscious choice? Like, you know, oh, well, if, yeah, if... The three things are happening, mm. then because of various things, you know, we, you know, you know, we've made a choice, as it were, mm. um, to go to whatever is the. Um, well, maybe if or if uh, if you have a particular interest in uh, in a particular object, well, then you know, this will influence, of course, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it will you know, then influence that mental you know, factor of manasikara, and accordingly, you know, you know, that object of interest will be you know, uh, you know, then observed or taken in. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Was there one more question, Nicola? Yes, quick one. Um, yeah. I'm interested in what you said last night with the um, Vedana being only one at a time, and in any one moment they there's, uh, there's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Yes, right. Time. Whereas with the mental states, you you said that there can be a number of them arising. Yeah, right. And I wonder if you could just flesh that out a bit and give some examples of that. Oh, for mental states, well, you know, you know uh, with regard to a particular experience, as mentioned yesterday, the seven universal mental factors will be there. So contact and contact feeling, perception, and then volition, and then the one-pointedness of mind, which is concentration, and then the life faculty, and so the manasikara. And then on top of this, 
you know, oh, you know, this initial application of the mind, sustained application of the mind may or may not be there, and something you know, then joy or zest, beauty may or may not be there, and if, you know, for instance, you know, it's an unpleasant object, and so it goes along with an unpleasant feeling, you know, then maybe you know, the anger is there as a, as a mental factor, you know. And that then will very much color the experience. Or if the experience goes along with a pleasant feeling, then in the absence of mindfulness, then the greed will be there. No? Apart from the seven universal mental factors. And then let's take another case. No, you're mindful of you know, the situation. And so the seven universals will be there. Then some of the occasionals, occasional mental states, uh, like, uh, like I said, joy and uh, effort and uh, the initial application you know, will be there. And, um, and then mindfulness will be there as a mental factor. And so, uh, concentration is present, effort, let's say, is also present, and then wisdom will be there. So, then you know the nature of that particular object at the time. So, the mind keeps... See, as a human being, we are exposed to external as as well as internal conditions or situations that keep changing all the time. So the mind has to then go along with that and adjust to that. And so sometimes it will be on the wholesome side, sometimes on the unwholesome side, sometimes it's more on the neutral side, and so on. And not. Categories in the mental states eh? that there can be one in each category, kind of thing. Is that not just one in each, but uh, no. a number of yes. mental states in the same category present? Yes, and more and more and more yes, right. And if you like to, I brought the Abhidhamma book along and you can look <laughs> at that. <laughs> There's, there are plenty in there, there are plenty of charts. <laughs> And so, you know, charts you know, that, or you know, there's one chart you know, that shows which mental state goes with uh, uh, which, what kind of consciousness and so, and so on and so forth. And, uh, some of them, they exclude each other. And, uh, Yona? Well, I just realized I was confused about, we talk of each other, the initial application of aiming and sustaining. Eh? When you say it falls away, um, I, I'm confused because... Um, I know you have to make an initial effort to concentrate the mind using those oh. factors. Yeah, right. But then you say it falls away, but the mind is still sticking to the object. So I, I, I guess I don't understand what you mean. Uh, maybe I don't understand. Oh, the way the way you know, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita explains this is, um, oh, with initial application. When a meditator you know, reaches about the fourth insight knowledge, by that time he or she is so skilled in uh, uh, observing an object that so, you know, the mind, without much aiming, goes just right to the object. No? And so, so you know, the example, the illustration that he gives is uh, you know, that of target practice. 
So, uh, the person who you know, does target practice, a sharpshooter, at first needs to train a lot to get really skilled and uh, skilled at hitting the bull's eye. But after you know, weeks of training, you know, the person, the sharpshooter, doesn't need to aim that much and, anymore, but just uh, takes uh, you know, takes the gun and uh, you know, uh, then pulls the trigger. And that, that term is used for that initial practice period before it gets sharp. At, at a later point. Yes, certainly you can say like that. But you said that it falls away at the second. Oh, this is in. No, 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 no. No, this was said in the context of the jhana practice. Okay. No. And so, um, yeah, so, and indeed, it does it never fall, never fall away. And in the vipassana practice, that's what I've you know, just explained. Um, as a meditator moves through the first few insight knowledges, and then against the fourth insight knowledge, you know, objects are occurring at great speed, and some you know, mindfulness you know, becomes extremely sharp, and so it no longer needs to, you know, uh, aim much. It's right. It falls right onto you know, the object of observation. So there's not a direct correlation between the jhanas and the, ins- the insight n- numbers that you've been talking about? There's some no, 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 no. This, oh, no, oh, samatha jhana practice and insight practice are two fundamentally different kinds of uh, meditation uh, practices. Oh, one can combine them. No, but it's uh, wise. Uh, it's wise not to you know, put both of them in a blender and mix them. Maybe there was one more thing I wanted to say. Well, you know, it's good. And to to do one thing at a time, you know, when you do your inside or vipassana practice, you do that, and then um, maybe either beforehand or afterwards, you do your samatha practice. One overlap, if you're mentioning overlap, well, the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw speaks of the so-called vipassana jhanas. No, you may have heard of those. Have you? Yes. You have. Yeah. And so, so uh, those are uh, experiences, uh, vipassana experiences, that are somewhat similar uh, in nature you know, to what occurs in the jhanas. And so, uh, Venerasi Sada has uh, has a system of uh, uh, correlating you know, some of those uh, uh, well, vipassana jhanas with insight knowledges. No? And so, now let me see. I hope I know. It's not. Um, what was it? Yeah, so, during the beginning of one's vipassana practice, well, you know, there's a lot of um, you know the mind or, or you know, the mind is not that steady yet, and so, 
Oh, and I gave the first inside knowledge when when beauty, so joy and happiness certainly arise, and then and also some amount of concentration is there, and the mind is still somewhat unsteady at the very beginning, but then gradually gets steadier. Now then, this could be compared to, you know, to or this could be called vipassana, first vipassana jhana. Some of the experiences are the same, like the pity and the, you know, I mean, does one experience similar things? They're similar, but not uh, not exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. No, and please keep uh, keep in mind uh, that the main difference uh, lies with uh, the uh, objects uh, observed. In jhana practice, you're using some conceptual object that you're uh, contemplating on or meditating uh, uh, with, and whereas in you know, the vipassana practice, you use uh, ultimate reality as an object. So, you know, pains and aches and rising and falling and uh, various sensations, mental states that uh, or which truly exist, and you're not uh, you're not adding to those, you're not creating those. Yeah, but it seems like when that in what we're doing, that you're keeping the mind from this very active, even though it's also very concentrated. Yeah, that's correct. And so they're working together rather than just sort of slipping into a state where, where it's still right. Yes, right, indeed. And uh, that's correct. And then, Alan, you had uh, uh, maybe the last question for tonight. Uh, I believe I heard you say uh, in the fourfold configuration of the jhanas, in the fourth jhana, uh, all that was left was, uh, I think you said... Um, uh, mindfulness and equanimity. Yeah, mindfulness and equanimity. That's, uh, that's the way it is being described in the text. And, uh, and now you wonder. Well, uh, the quality of mindfulness. Uh, uh, I guess maybe that's perhaps uh, for another, another discussion. But, um, when the mind is so concentrated on equanimity, uh, I, I, I always thought it was it's correct and that's uh, that's uh, mm, indeed in the actual experience it's uh, uh, equanimity and uh, one-pointedness of the mind but uh, the way that for uh, jhana gets described in the text uh, uh, for one reason or another the mindfulness is mentioned there Certainly, intentionally so. In this in this area, itself, it seems like there is the opportunity for great discussion about mindfulness and concentration being uh, sympathetic practices and can be practiced at the same time. Um. Mixing, you know, mixing you know, the mindfulness or mixing all the pasna and the samatha um, doesn't, at least at first, it's not absolutely not you know, recommended, you know, because you will know, end up with a mixed bag of experiences, uh, not you know, no longer knowing uh, what uh, or what kind of experience uh, you know, can be attributed to which kind of practice. 
you know, in certain, uh, that sort of makes for unclear experiences. So it's much wiser you know, to you know, do one thing uh, at a time to you know, gain um, skills in, let's say, the first you know, vipassana, and you know, then you know, once you're quite you know, uh, proficient in that, you know, then you do you know, your samatha, then you do pure samatha. And once you've become skilled in both you know, vipassana and samatha, then you can combine those. And this is known as yuganada, the coupling, uh, coupling or yoking of uh, samatha and vipassana. Uh, but then, uh, this takes quite some experience. Putting the cart before the horse, I'm told that, uh, uh, to uh, achieve on uh, that this practice needs to be perfected. Uh, no, no, yes. Uh, um, and those statements are there, uh, but uh, um, it, well, it depends on you know, whether you want to go into Niroda, it seems that way, uh, whether a person wants to go in Niroda Samapati or not. And uh, you know, there are plenty, you know, plenty of uh, uh, disciples of the Buddha you know, who did just pure you know, Vipassana without any Samatha, they gained Arahanship. No. So, you know, the mind, the mind is flexible and it can be trained in in different uh, ways. But uh, samatha and uh, vipassana, by nature, just by by nature, the the way they they're set up are different. Yeah, maybe and so different in the sense that the you know, vipassana practice clearly you know, generates you know, wisdom, and of course, involved in this is uh, uh, the arising of concentration. Whereas uh, uh, in samatha practice, you know, it certainly uh, generates uh, different levels of concentrations uh, coming in the form of the absorptions, and so, you know, there's uh, not that much you know, wisdom in uh, samatha practice. So a samatha practitioner may have, or samatha practitioner may have gained the first jhana, second, third, fourth jhana, even some of the immaterial jhanas, and yet not understand even the very basic distinction between physical and mental phenomena. No. There's uh, there's plenty of evidence for for this in the text.